Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're talking about not one, but the second one in the series of what some consider a GTA clone, kind of, that shred its own path. I mean, I think it improved on some things. It kind of went crazy in some of the further sequels. Uh, But in my opinion, was, at the time, the better GTA. Ooh, that is a hot take to start this episode off with. I like it. Mm-hmm. Look, Saints Row 1 was a lot of fun, especially if you wanted to play a game that I think expanded on the gang side mm-hmm. of GTA. You know, we had San Andreas where the gang gameplay was a big core element of the entire game. We didn't really get that anymore in any of the other GTA games. So then Saints Row comes out. You know, you are a gang fighting with other street gangs. And I think it takes itself a little seriously. It's got some of that same tongue-in-cheek stuff that GTA does, sure. Yeah. But I feel like it was taking itself as a series a little bit more seriously in that first one. Then we get into two where I think it kind of picks up where that one left off and improves itself in a few ways through the different missions, the side quests. Uh, definitely the hand-to-hand combat is mm-hmm. much improved in two. And then, of course, like you said, it just gets way silly out of control after that because I think that they realized we're not ever really going to compete with GTA for like the crime sim style of gaming. We we need to take things to a whole new goofy level. And, and it worked. I mean, the sequels are silly. You become president. You fight aliens. You get superpowers. There's crazy stuff that happens. But I think it still kept a lot of that core gameplay element for Saints Row people, at least for me, for what I kind of wanted as Saints Row kind of went through it, to change it up. It's silly. It's dumb. But the thing with Saints Row is a series. It's a series. So a lot of the characters overlap throughout each of the games, unlike with GTA, where like each rendition of, you know, one, two, three, four, five, and all the other kind of outcroppings of it, those are all for the most part, self-contained. Absolutely, and I I think that's a really good point, that they were able to kind of do that, you know, Gat being like this sort of fun character that from the very Mm -hmm. beginning was fun, that keeps coming back, and and I think is sort of a uh, vehicle for that silliness in a lot of aspects. I, I think that was really cool, and I think ultimately they made the right decision by choosing to go toward that sillier route as, you know, fun and as much potential, I think, as those first two games really had to be cool, serious ones, too. But let's talk about it. Saints Row 2 is a 2008 action-adventure video game developed by Volition and published by THQ. It is the sequel to 2006's Saints Row and the second installment in the Saints Row series. The game was released in October 2008 for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, January 2009 for Microsoft Windows, and April 2016 for Linux. 
a mobile tie-in game was developed by G5 Entertainment and also released in October 2008. Saints Row 2 directly follows the events of the first game as the player's custom character awakens from a coma after five years to find that their gang, the Third Street Saints, has been disbanded and their former territories taken over by newly formed criminal syndicates and a corrupt corporation. With the help of new and old allies, the player attempts to rebuild the Saints and take back Stillwater from their rivals. Saints Row 2 developers opted for a more comedic tone to set the game apart from Grand Theft Auto, with which the original game was compared by most reviewers for their similar premise and gameplay elements. The game's promotional effort included various public showings, special editions and downloadable content including the Ultor Exposed and Corporate Warfare mission packages. Reviews were largely favorable, praising the action and straightforward gameplay, while only criticizing technical issues. The Windows port in particular was heavily criticized for technical issues not present in any of the other versions. The game had sold around 400,000 units by November of 2008 and 3.4 million units by September of 2010. A sequel, Saints Row the Third, was released in November 2011. And so let's break down kind of where Volition came from and kind of the split, this unfortunate split that started with the two founders. So we originally had Parallax Software, which was founded on June 14th, 1993 by Mike Kulas and Matt Toshog. The company was incorporated under the name Parallax Software Corporation. Both founders were programmers who had previously worked together on Car and Driver. This led them to consider launching their own game development company, knowing that, should they fail, they would have to return to working for other companies. To reach a lower cost of living, Toshlock moved from Boston to Champaign, Illinois, where Kulas resided, and the two launched Parallax Software. Early on, they hired programmers John Slagel and Che Yon Huang, of which Wang also worked on level design. The team developed a rough concept for a game called Inferno, which they pitched to Apogee Software, the prime publisher of id Software. Apogee began funding the game's development, though the funds did not suffice for the company over time. Because the team lacked an artist, Adam Pletcher was hired in January 1994. Shortly thereafter, Apogee dropped the project after it had been in development for seven months, leaving Parallax with an already funded, functional prototype. Subsequently, while the studio was slowly running out of money, they produced a demo reel of the game and set it as a VHS tape to various publishers. Three companies, Accolade, Trimark Interactive, and Interplay Productions, offered to publish the game, of which Parallax chose Interplay. Jason Whiteside then became Parallax's eighth employee, working on level design while studying industrial design at school. With the studio lacking a quality assurance department, the game was tested by the entire team. As Interplay's funds had also dried up, Parallax refused to ask them for more, not wanting to show signs of weakness. Instead, Kulas and Tashlog invested their own money into the continued development. Funds provided by Apogee, Interplay, and the two founders totaled to about 450,000 US dollars. Inferno, now titled Descent, was released in March 1995 to widespread attention. Although Toshlog had moved to Champaign from Boston, he did not want to stay in Champaign long term. During the development of Descent 2, he and three designers moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan to open a second office for Parallax. At the new office, Toshlog also hired two further programmers. 
After Descent 2 had shipped, the team came to the conclusion that working on the same game out of two distant offices had adverse effects on the team, where Toshlog and Kulas agreed to move the company to one office. However, they could not decide on where they should move the company, so they instead opted to split the company in half, a move they were able to pursue due to Descent's success. Thus, half of Parallax employees followed Toshlog to Michigan, where Toshlog formed Outrage Entertainment, while Kulas stayed with the main Parallax office in Champaign. As Kulas's company was to receive a new name, he asked the remaining team for ideas. When he found that he liked none of the proposals, he sat down in his living room, pulling books from a shelf and looking through dictionaries and reference books glossaries for a possible name. In one such glossary, he found the word volition, described as an intense active will to accomplish something. As he drew a connection between this definition and the act of software development, he chose Volition to be the new company name. He pitched the name and its definition to the company's employees, asking them to create a suitable logo. Of the many entries submitted, the one that was chosen was designed by Whiteside and inspired by the logo of Wax Tracks Records, while Pletcher created a font to display the company name. The logo has been in use since, and formally, Volition was founded in October 1996 with 12 members, and the split was announced on December 1st, 1997, with both companies having been organized into new corporate entities and wholly owned by their respective leads. Following the split, Volition and Outrage signed with Interplay for two further projects each. Their first project under the new name was Descent, Free Space, The Great War a game that was set to improve on the concepts of games like Star Wars X-Wing and Star Wars TIE Fighter. During the development of Free Space, the Volition team doubled in size, adding about five or six people to the studio. During this time, many team members were allocated to training the new employees. Meanwhile, Kulas, as the sole manager of the company, had to divide his time between programming and managing the business. Consequently, should any business matter come up, his portion of the programming work stood still. FreeSpace was the last Volition game Kulas would significantly do programming work on. Following the release of FreeSpace, Volition began work on four projects, FreeSpace 2, Descent 4, Tube Racer, and Summoner. Descent 4 was to be the fourth main entry in the Descent series. As the Descent 3 release date came closer, Interplay began having financial difficulties. When the game launched in June 1999, it did not sell well. The two companies separated on Volition's suggestion, and Interplay owned the publishing rights to the Descent franchise. And as a result, Volition could not publish Descent 4 with a different publisher. Instead, they reused much of the code and tools they had created for the game and used it to create Red Faction. Following Red Faction, Volition developed Summoner 2, aiming at fixing all flaws made in the first game. While it was received better than the first game, it also sold fewer copies. After that came Red Faction 2, which was ultimately not reviewed as good as the first game, again to the team's surprise. Internally, Red Faction 2 was considered a failure, and the series was halted. Ports of the game, released in 2003, were developed by fellow THQ Studios Outrage for Windows and Xbox, and Cranky Pants Games for GameCube. A third Red Faction game was already in development, but was consequently cancelled. A third Summoner game was also cancelled. Following these cancellations, their team started development on a heist-style game called Underground. The team worked on the game for about 12 months, 
But when Grand Theft Auto 3 was released, the marketing department at THQ pushed the expectations for the game so high that they could not be met, wherefore Underground 2 was canceled. At one point, Volition held a design exercise inviting staff members to submit ideas for a new game. One such idea was a hybrid between a first-person shooter and a gang simulator, a genre unexplored by most games at the time. A trailer was put together by taking snippets from various movies and games, underlaid with the song F*** the Police, and after it was showcased in their boardroom, THQ's chief financial officer stepped forward, stating that this would be a game they were willing to develop. Volition imposed several rules on the game, such as the exclusion of children and the inability to kill the police, so as not to generate too much controversy. The team shifted away from developing in wide arrays of genres, instead focusing the entire studio's talent on one design principle, open world. The game, initially known as Bling Bling, so glad that they changed that, by the way, (laughs) was disliked by many of Volition's employees who either did not want to be associated with a gang simulator or thought that their work on the game was not worthwhile. The studio faced further trouble as they switched from the PS2 to the Xbox 360 because the documentation provided with the 360 was incomplete and the final hardware specifications for it unknown. During the game's development, the studio overspent its budget of $8 to $9 million and brought up its headcount to over 100. After the game, now titled Saints Row, was finished, the team was asked to write post-mortem documentations which presented a lot of negative views on the game, as well as criticism with the management. And when the game was released and sold well, it was decided that Volition would develop another such game, which would become Saints Row 2. And Saints Row 2 differed from its predecessor in that it was more sandbox-oriented and more infused with humor, which the first game almost completely lacked. And we talked about this earlier that completely agree, it needed something fresh, different, to not just be this GTA-esque clone. And so kind of adding in that humor, adding in the sandbox open world idea of it really drove the game higher and not only more praise from critics, but more praise from people who worked on it. And as such, Volition began work on Saints Row 2 in 2005, about a year before Saints Row was released. The sequel was first announced by THQ's CEO, Brian Farrell, in a February 2007 conference call, alongside another six franchise continuations for the 2008 fiscal year. Game details began to surface in May 2008 after the first teaser trailer was released and sites like IGN and GameSpot reported on an early version of the game. One of the development team's core goals was to develop an identity for the Saints Row franchise within the open-world genre. The series was known as a GTA clone, based on its first release's similarities to the open-world sandbox game Grand Theft Auto 3. Accordingly, Saints Row 2 was compared to the GTA series' own upcoming sequel, Grand Theft Auto 4. When questioned about the two sequels' close release dates, lead producer Greg Donovan responded that they thought their game could compete, that he saw the Grand Theft Auto sequel moving, quote, in a more realistic direction, and that there was room for more than just one game in the open-world genre as a very different experience than what other games are looking to do. And I I agree. I mean, GTA 4 did bring a lot more of that realism and driving and shooting and health bars and a lot of other stuff that 
took out a lot more of the arcade elements of it. For sure. Relationships, a lot of things that sometimes pop up as realism that mm-hmm. maybe we don't necessarily need. Yes. The team took an over-the-top design approach with cartoonish caricature-esque you know, characters and wild and outrageous gameplay. Many early game elements were considered too crass to be included in the final release. Many of the original Saints Row developers continued on to the sequel's team, and thus the team worked from their lessons learned rather than starting anew. The two games were consequently similar in design, and they overhauled the game engine to enhance the sequel's graphics and added contrast and higher quality textures to make the city setting of Stillwater more realistic. Visual enhancements were also applied to people, cars, explosions, lighting, shadows, and the weather system. A central design goal was to create a world that exists independent of the player, that featured more realistic non-player characters that would smoke cigarettes, use cell phones, drink coffee, open umbrellas when it rained, and physically interact. The original game's engine could not support proximity NPC interaction like sitting together or cuddling. As the city design finalized late in development, the team laboriously hand-placed 20,000 nodes throughout the game that would trigger NPC actions. The Saints Row series narrative was conceived as a three-part story, with Saints Row 2 as the second of three. While the developers continued the story of the original game, they sought to accommodate newcomers to the series. The final script had roughly 80,000 lines of dialogue, twice that of Saints Row's, and the story drew strong cinematic influence from Quentin Tarantino films Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. While the script was written to follow a path of betrayal, revenge, and redemption, the game retained Saints Row's light humor with the -the over-the-top, socially distorted narrative juxtaposed with dark, gritty moments. Saints Row's silent protagonist speaks in Saints Row 2, granting the protagonist more personality and improving the storytelling. According to James Sy, one of the lead designers, they sought to heavily stylize the game's characters and assign them unique personality traits. The basic character designs followed naturally from the story Volition wanted to tell, but the characters' personalities and mannerisms were mainly a product of the voice acting performances, where the actors had freedom to interpret and develop their characters. The game's voice actors include film and television stars such as Neil Patrick Harris, Michael Dorn, Mila Kunis, Jay Moore, Keith David, and Eliza Dushku. While the first game was released as an Xbox 360 exclusive, Volition expanded the sequel's initial development to the PS3 platform. The platform was successful in Europe, where Volition wished to expand. The port was developed in-house by a team that previously worked on Xbox 360 development. They struggled with the PS3's cell architecture, and the game was particularly unstable during development and would crash after several hours of play. Lead producer Greg Donovan blamed their failing to take systems and features to completion as programmers fought last-minute bugs, artists lacked time to finalize designs, and consequently, playtest versions were not ready until late in the development cycle. And I want to just roll it back really quick, especially with the storytelling elements of this, because the first game had a little bit of a story going on that feels very disjointed. You mm-hmm. can sort of follow these different story paths for each individual gang that you're trying to take over. And you could complete one really before getting too deep into the other ones. And then by the time that the game ends, 
and you enter into this coma, that's to me really the first time that it ever felt like it was trying to tell a big overarching story. Yeah. And famously, in all of those different paths for the three rival gangs, you are a silent protagonist, and then you get like one line in the very final mission for each of those gangs when you complete them. So when this game came out, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, this guy can talk, and or girl or whatever they they can talk and they actually have a big part of the story to tell now from this point on so it was like a very different type of game just from that point alone going into Saints Row 2 yeah and i think that's one of the biggest shifts really not only that is like dual wielding like you said the humor the combat the cars just so much more of that characterization of these these different Stillwater people and gang members that it's, it's great to see it come to life. And like you said, like sign protagonists work. They feel, they feel really weird in a game like this. So when you're able to like, talk and communicate and push these stories and really care about your character, I mean, at that point, I mean, it's, it's a huge shift and a huge shift indeed to let's talk about the marketing aspect of this. And prior to its release, Saints Row 2 was heavily marketed and promoted through internet and television trailers. Volition also ran several fan contests with series-related paraphernalia as prizes. The game's original release date was delayed for marketing considerations. The game's first trailer, in March 2008, was presented as a tourism promotion about the Ultor Corporation's role in rebuilding Stillwater. A full marketing campaign featuring American film actor Gary Busey began the next month. The Street Lessons with Uncle Gary video series demonstrated particular aspects of gameplay. Subsequent trailers over the next several months also highlighted gameplay elements, but one made light of Grand Theft Auto 4's lack of replay value, and another demonstrated the cooperative mode using character modeled on the candidates from the 2008 United States presidential election. A redesigned official website and community network was launched in July of 2008, an American Pornographic actress Tara Patrick was featured in her own marketing campaign for the game. Promotional contests throughout mid-2008 included Pimp Your Crib and Summer of Bling. Another competition from THQ and Worth Playing gave the winner a trip to a San Francisco Saints Row 2 multiplayer event and published their thoughts online. British fashion-labeled Joystick Junkies ran a t-shirt design competition in September 2008 and the top entry was featured in the game's first DLC pack. Another round of Summer of Bling awarded the shirts as prizes. The Trick Your Pack tool launched in September let the player create their own game box art. There were also other promotions and giveaways, I mean, throughout this entire time. And at conventions, Saints Row 2 appeared at the 2008 E3, THQ Gamers Day, Comic-Con, PAX, GameStop Expo, and Leipzig Games Conventions. The game also promoted itself in the MySpace Music Tour. Listen, this was, this was a, a bygone era, but they were, they were there. <laughs> this was like the era of trying to revive all that stuff, if I remember right. Like, we had maybe oh, passed yeah. a little bit of the MySpace in the dust, but... Yeah, I think this was after, like, JT had purchased it. He might have already sold it off yeah. again. I don't know. But they are trying to get back, like, <laughs> something to go with it. Right. Uh, so they, they tried. Uh, but in November, THQ signed a deal with Massive Incorporated 
to include in-game advertisements on their Xbox 360 and PS3 products. In-game and online, players can also find movie posters throughout the city that promote upcoming releases. So this also is the early era of that selling ads in games. The way this is done with Saints Row 2 specifically, I think is a clever way where it's not in your face. It's showing off posters and a couple other things for real world stuff. Not in the way that all of your other simulator games, like your sports simulators, are actually showing big ads, very similar to how sports are in real life, in that same way. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the gameplay. It is a GTA clone, but it has a little bit of its own kind of unique things as well. It's own panache. It's own panache. For sure. I wouldn't say words like that, but you're Italian. After successfully completing the first game mission, the player meets the Third Street Saints and begins their devious schemes with the gang. Missions are unlocked by earning respect points from minigames and side missions, and although completing missions is necessary for game progression, players can complete them at their own leisure. The player is granted the option of instantly retrying the missions should they fail an attempt and numerous checkpoints save progress in each mission, and missions can be replayed from locations within the environment. Aside from attempting missions, the player can explore the environment, purchase items at shops, and participate in the aforementioned minigames and side missions. The player can also wreak havoc upon the city of Stillwater, which can provoke potentially fatal attention from authoritative forces. The player can recruit members from a friendly gang and use a mobile phone to contact friends and or businesses, as well as to input cheat codes. Players create their own character through a system that allows them to modify gender, ethnicity, fitness, voice, face, and hairstyle. Walk and fighting styles and personality traits can be assigned. Players purchase clothes, tattoos, and piercings, and set outfits can be bought or created and saved to the player character's wardrobe. Cribs, or safe houses, allow players to withdraw earnings, change outfits, replay missions, and save the game. Cribs can be customized by applying themes and purchasing objects like TVs and pool tables. Boats and fixed-wing aircraft can be stored at purchase docks and hangars. Players select the outfits, vehicles, gestures, and graffiti styles used by street members of the 3rd Street Saints. The combat systems from Saints Row have been updated, but many of the basics remain unchanged. While engaging in melee-based combat, the player character will perform combos and charge-up attacks and can execute a finishing move if three consecutive hits are dealt. With a gun equipped, the player can perform a groin attack and can zoom in for a finer aim reticle. The player can also employ the use of human shields and can use makeshift weapons pulled from the environment like fire hydrants and cement blocks. Yeah, so it adds a lot more than we're seeing with GTA 4. I mean, if we're going to compare it to the series, whereas like we talked about, it's more that realistic. The hand-to-hand combat really in GTA has never been good. Um, no. It's it's even in GTA 5 today, it's still jank and it's still weird and the coding's odd, but it felt so smooth in Saints Row 2 and the continuation of it. And the idea of like being able to grab makeshift weapons and grab a human shield and like all these other elements that are applied to it. Like the one thing, like as we're reading this, that like sinks into my psyche 
is being able to grab those other gang members and get like a carload of like four of you just driving around doing stuff. That's so fun. Yeah, and that was something that you could sort of do in San Andreas, but there's different points in the game where the gang stuff really matters and really doesn't. Where this game, it's all about the gang warfare pretty much from beginning to end, even when it's like against a corporation who's not really even mm-hmm. a gang. You know, you're still able to round up your gang members and and be a leader. And there's a lot more personality involved in this game as well. Where, sure, GTA has the realism stuff nailed down, but you're really locked into whoever the protagonist is. GTA 5 is probably the most customizable in that sense in that Mm -hmm. if you really want trevor to be like a certain kind of person like he has style within like his trevor style but you can't really just go and get like franklin's outfit and put it on trevor you can't you know have michael sort of like (laughs) you know aging dad vibe and and give that to franklin (laughs) in that sense yeah but you could really do any of that stuff with your character in saints row 2 even down to the way that that character fought you know you would steal essentially one of the other enemies fighting styles and make that your own Mm -hmm. and you know you could customize the vehicles and and keep them in this big long list of cars in your garage and There was just, in my opinion, a lot more freedom within Saints Row 2 than there ever has been in the GTA series. I think 5, they started trying to do more of that, especially in the online, but it really is just sort of a different experience. Yeah, it absolutely is. And having those shifts and just allowing for customization in the game, even if it's pretty linear to a point, it just allows you to play the the way you want to play, which I, I think is huge with open world games like this. And as we know, players navigate the open world fictional city of Stillwater. The city consists of 45 neighborhoods divided between 20 districts. It is expanded from Saints Row's version of Stillwater, roughly one and a half times as big and featuring new districts such as the prison, nuclear power plant, and expanded airport, among others. Game developers stated that the city has very much been redeveloped and each individual neighborhood has been touched up in one way or another. According to the storyline, the in-game corporation Ultor spent more than $300 million redeveloping the city, funding the police force, and, as it states, turning the once-crime-ridden third-tier city into an urban utopia. The Saints Row District is a more notable change within the city, having been completely redesigned and serving as the location of Ultor's headquarters, a towering skyscraper referred to as the Phillips Building. Many old districts from the earlier version of Stillwater have also seen changes. Examples include the expansion taking place in the suburbs district, which is double the size of its depiction in Saints Row, and the museum district, which features the Eremenos Ancient Greek Museum exhibit, complete with models of the Acropolis of Athens and Theater of Dionysus. There are also several completely new districts, such as the marina and the university. From the beginning of the game, the map of Stillwater is fully visible, which is newer than like with the GTA stuff. When you have like bounce different kind of islands or different districts, you didn't see it until you kind of came to unlock it. However, shops and activities will simply be displayed as a question mark until the player discovers them. 
By completing missions and wiping out enemy strongholds, the player gains control of the various neighborhoods the city is split into. There are over 130 interiors within the city, and hidden events can be triggered by some, including over 90 shops, which can be purchased when the player controls each shop's associated territory. The player gets a 10% discount at owned shops, and buying an entire chain of departments will mean that the protagonist's face appears on in-game billboard advertisements. The game shares technology with that of Red Faction Guerrilla, another Volition-developed game, and so certain elements of the environment are fully destructible. A number of Easter eggs are placed within the sandbox, including the pop-out Easter Bunny, which won Top Easter Egg of 2008. So on top of all that, there was a respect system within the game as well, which was a scoring system where the player earned respect points to unlock missions and progress through the storyline. So the player can partake in storyline and stronghold missions only after filling up at least one bar of respect. And respect points are removed when the player starts a mission. The style rank is a modifier of how much respect the player can earn, and this is increased by purchasing items for the player character. Respect points can be earned in two ways, by progressing through side missions called activities and by completing minigames and stunts called diversions. There are a broad range of activities and diversions available for the player to progress through. Many of the game's activities made appearances in Saints Row, and a variety of new activities were also introduced into the game. Examples include an underground fight club, that's personally my favorite. There was a parody of the cop's television show known as Fuzz, and numerous others. Each activity can be initiated from various locations and plays out over six levels of increasing difficulty. The activities have been designed to suit solo and cooperative play, and most diversions do not have specific start points. There are numerous diversions playable in the game, such as acts of indecent exposure, combat and driving stunts, car surfing, and a survival horror minigame called Zombie Uprising. And I, I really loved the Fight Club thing. I thought that was a lot of fun, especially with having the customizable combat, hand-to-hand combat within the game. Um, it reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of sort of progressing through the various Fight Clubs in the original Fable. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot like that. There was also some really fun ones. I can't remember if they were in one or two, but like insurance fraud, trying to basically rack up as much damage as you could within a certain amount of time. You know, of mm-hmm. course, there was the the fuzz, the cops thing. There were literal escort missions and things like that. Yeah. From that first one, uh, uh, I think there was a uh, a destruction derby as well. That was super cool. So lots of these fun little mini games within that also granted you some like really cool rewards within Saints Row. Well, and, and stuff like that just makes it like San Andreas had a lot of cool stuff like this. And five, I think when we get on, I think GTA really polished itself up to be this silly game, but it became this serious game, especially going into four with Nico and then five getting, you know, three kind of outrageous characters, but telling a very beautiful story with it, it kind of stayed in in that realm of it. There's still some secrets and silliness into it, but really the idea of minigames, I think just overall, has kind of gone to the wayside, and playing these games is just so, so much fun to be able to play through a lot of, again, create like the insurance fraud one is so much fun. Yeah. And it's just, it's dumb silliness, but it, it allows you to kind of break away from that regular gameplay to play 
something a little different. Yeah, there are very arcadey elements to Saints Row that I feel like really shine within those mini games specifically. Like, yeah, the story is there, great, but you know, there are these other things that can happen in the real world that they're sort of satirizing within Saints Row to begin with, and then making them mm-hmm. these activities and giving you really awesome rewards for going through and doing those things and exploring those aspects of the game. Like not only did it make a more immersive world, I think that makes more sense for um, the silent protagonist, now not silent protagonist guy mm-hmm. and his building up of the third street saints, but it also just made for a really fun use of traditional arcade elements when games were really starting to take themselves a lot more seriously and, and be more plot driven and, and, things like that. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So let's let's break down a bit more of the story. I know we have the mini games, you have a lot more of that, but what does it entail for our silent protagonist to go a little chattier? So five years after the explosion on Richard Hughes' yacht, player character, who was the sole survivor, awakens from a coma within the infirmary of Stillwater's maximum security prison after undergoing extensive plastic surgery. So basically your character creation. So if you didn't import your character from Saints Row 1, or if you should make a new character, this is how you did it. They escaped to Stillwater with the help of Carlos Mendoza, the brother of a former Third Street Saints member who explains that the gang has since disbanded. Most members were arrested by Troy Bradshaw, an undercover cop who had infiltrated the gang as lieutenant and who has since become chief of police, using his influence to protect the imprisoned saints. In the gang's absence, their former base of operations, the Saints Row District, had been redeveloped into a pristine commercial and residential area by the Ultor Corporation, who have further plans for Stillwater. The player works to rebuild the saints by rescuing their former lieutenant, Johnny Gatt, from his trial, recruiting new members, including Carlos and Gatt's acquaintances, Pierce Washington and Shondi, who they quickly promote to lieutenants, and setting up a new headquarters in a hotel destroyed by an earthquake. Eventually, the player steps up as the Saints' new leader, earning the moniker of The Boss, and declares war on the new gangs that have taken over the city during their absence, assigning their lieutenants to discover more about each. Gat and Pierce focus on the Ronin, a Japanese gang who conduct gambling and porn operations, led by Shogo Akuji, and his second-in-command, Junichi. On behalf of Shogo's father, Kazuo, who leads international operations. After the Saints rob their casino, the Ronin retaliate by infiltrating the home of Gat's girlfriend, Aisha, killing her and severely wounding Gat. After Gat recovers, he and the boss retaliate by killing Junichi, who was sold out by Shogo out of envy for Junichi's closer bond with Kazuo. Shogo, whom they bury alive after he ambushes them at Aisha's funeral and ultimately Kazuo, ending the Ronin. Carlos researches the Brotherhood, an outlaw gang who conduct gun-running operations, led by Maero, his girlfriend Jessica, and tattoo artist Matt. After the boss rejects Maero's offer to join forces and split their profits 80-20, a series of tit-for-tat retaliations results in the deaths of Carlos, who is dragged face down from the hitch of a speeding truck before boss grants him a mercy kill, and Jessica, who is trapped in the trunk of a car by the boss and then unknowingly crushed by Maero with his monster truck. 
After failing to kill Myero during an assault on the Brotherhood's base, the boss eventually eliminates him during a demolition derby. Shondi investigates the Sons of Samedi, a Haitian voodoo gang who run drug operations led by the general in his right hand, Mr. Sunshine. One of Shondi's exes, DJ Veteran Child, is a high-ranking lieutenant who is forced by the gang to kidnap Shondi after the saints interfere in their operations and steal most of their customers. The boss kills Veteran Child to rescue Shondi before focusing on eliminating the sons of Samedi by killing Mr. Sunshine and the general. And of course, the boss in this situation, silent protagonist. I don't know if we established that or not, but is you? Now, after defeating all the rival gangs, the Saints find themselves targeted by Ultor's power-hungry CEO, Dane Vogel, who was playing the gangs against each other to lower real estate values in Stillwater, which Ultor could then purchase and redevelop. After fending off several attacks by Ultor's private security forces, the Saints retaliate by destroying one of the company's labs and killing its board of directors. Taking advantage of this to assume full control of Ultor, Vogel decides to personally deal with the Saints, but before he can do so, he finds himself targeted by them at a press conference. Escaping back to the Ultor building, Vogel is pursued by the boss, who fights their way to Vogel's office and kills him. Afterward, the Saints return to ruling over Stillwater undisputed. Now, at any point during the game, the boss can listen to wiretap conversations between Troy and former Saints leader Julius Little at the police station which reveal that Troy asked Julius to disband the gang in exchange for not arresting certain members. Knowing that the player would disagree, Julius attempted to kill them on Hughes' yacht, then retired. The boss calls former Saints Lieutenant Dex Jackson, who left the gang to work for Ultor, to discuss their findings and agrees to meet them in person. When they arrive, however, the boss is met by Julius instead and realizes Dex lured them both into a trap. After surviving an attack by Ultor security forces, the boss and Julius argue over what the saints have become before the boss executes Julius in revenge. So yeah, if, if a lot of this ties in to that original story and a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily fully revealed in that one, and it's really cool how this drama like continues on to the second game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that they did a really good job of just establishing more of that that grittier side within the funny stuff as well with a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Throughout most of the game in the in the first Saints Road, like Johnny Gat is this really goofy, lighthearted character. And then you see him sort of turn in Saints Row 2 after his girlfriend is murdered, basically, as part of all of his business dealings and, and gang dealings and all that. And I think they do a really great job then of just establishing not only like your rise within this, but then just also how all these other characters um, are more than just these cartoonish, you know, caricatures, Mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So Saints Row 2 has various multiplayer components implemented throughout the game. Through an online network or through system linking, the player can progress through the game with a cooperative partner. While in co-op mode, both players can explore the city and progress through the game's storyline missions and minigames. Both players are rewarded and credited for completion of such activities, 
and the players can furthermore play against each other in competitive metagames. The co-op mode is drop-in or drop-out, and there is no limit as to how far the players can be away from each other. The game contains competitive multiplayer modes supporting between 4 and 12 players in a match. There are two standard deathmatch modes, the free-for-all Gangsta Brawl mode and its team-based variant Team Gangsta Brawl. Another mode, known as Strong Arm, puts two teams against each other fighting for control over the neighborhood. In Strong Arm, the first team to earn $100 million wins and money is earned by competing head-to-head in activities, controlling tag spots which serve as bonus modifiers, or by eliminating members of the opposing team. While in a party, players are free to roam around a lobby. The player can rank up in multiplayer and displays this by earning various badges, which are displayed next to the player's name. By ranking up, the player can unlock more expensive clothing for their multiplayer character. This for me was one of the biggest differences between GTA 4 and Saints Row 2. GTA 4 was the eve of having multiplayer in GTA. You had like an online where you and I played it a little bit, where it's like a free roam kind of thing. You'd have weapons, you kind of fight each other. It was just more, yeah. of, a, it was more of a sandbox. It, there wasn't really like a, a much to it. And GTA 5 obviously capitalized on that. But being able to drop in, drop out, go wherever you want in the city, complete missions, complete mini games, and then also like play with each other through this competitiveness mode, that was really big and really set this aside, like apart, I should say, from GTA 4. Yeah, I think that this was really what made Saints Row 2 a lot of fun, especially for us. We definitely did the exploring, just sort of free roaming mm-hmm. sandbox stuff within Saints Row 2 and had, in my opinion, a lot more fun doing that um, than it ever was in GTA 4, which you're right, did have a little bit of that online, but they were trying to, I think, establish what are traditional multiplayer modes for like shooters within GTA 4. They were doing a little bit of that in Saints Row 2 as well, but that was not the mode that was as popular. In GTA 4, when you were doing that open sandbox thing, it was in sort of these unfamiliar areas that were sort of built up just for the online play. Whereas in Saints Row 2, you were actually still within the same city exploring all that stuff together. And you had your unlockables with you. And, you know, in GTA 4, that wasn't really the case. You were kind of logging in and you weren't Nico. You had to be some other random person essentially mm-hmm. you know whereas because of all that customization already built into saints road 2 i think that there was a lot more availability for fun and it made sense now when it comes to especially games like this grand theft auto you have to have some good music a lot of licensed music and saints road 2 is no scoundrel when it comes to that because the game's soundtrack features about 170 licensed tracks accessible across 12 in-game radio stations while driving or at home. Station genres include pop, rock, hip-hop, R&B, funk, soul, alternative, indie, metal, easy-listening, world, classical, reggae, and electronic, with artists such as As I Lay Dying, Opeth, Duran Duran, Lamb of God, The Used, My Chemical Romance, Avenged Sevenfold, Paramore, Panic at the Disco, and Run DMC. The player can create a custom playlist of the licensed tracks to play on a separate station. Lead audio designer Frank 
PetraKey's budget for licensed music was double that of the previous game, as to secure more prominent tracks. Volition extended the game's over-the-top atmosphere and humor into the radio stations via commercials. For example, commercials that promoted Ultor Corporation products served to enhance the player's sense of the corporation's omnipresence in Stillwater. The radio commercials were recorded with voice actors in the same room, rather than apart, so as to maximize their group dynamic. Many of the in-game commercials went through several drafts, and the developers found this writing process to be challenging. The soundtrack within this game, amazing. Take on me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That alone, just having that was fantastic. And if I remember correctly, maybe it was Saints Row 1, it could have been 2, you were sort of able to go and purchase and unlock new songs um, that would play on the radio stations as well. And so you could sort of have your own playlist within the game. And that was a big thing for the time where we had come off of, like in San Andreas, if you had an Xbox, you could put music on the console and then have the radio station from your console's music play within that game. They sort of Mm -hmm. moved away from that in other games and licensing became a whole big topic of conversation with things like LimeWire and digital media rights and all that stuff you know, was kind of getting worked out. So we did have this really great soundtrack for this game where you were able to get all of these mainstream songs and just it just adds to the fun. We've talked in the past about, you know, playing like a, a zombie shooter and the music comes on, you know, Black Betty came on for you mm-hmm. when you're in the middle of doing something. It's those little things where you just get that little bit of extra energy And having a good soundtrack like Saints Row 2 did absolutely adds to that. That's it. And be able to create your own station. You know, make your own playlist as you go through. So if there's some songs you don't like or some songs that you love that, like, can't get enough of this, you pop that in your radio station, you get to put that in your car, your house when you're there, your, you know, your gang stuff. And it just, it just makes it just more personal in a way. You can kind of personalize your whole thing and just makes it so much more of a cool experience. Absolutely. So the game was originally scheduled for release in North America on August 26, 2008, but was delayed to October 14th, both to add final touches and to launch in a more advantageous release window. The game was released in three different collector's editions, each with a copy of the game, a poster, a limited edition art book, and several extras. The Saints Row 2 Initiation Pack, exclusive to Australia and New Zealand, included promotional items such as a pizza box and bullet-shaped USB memory stick. The Russia-exclusive Gift Buka edition also included the bullet-shaped USB stick, and the gun pack included a gun-shaped USB stick. A month before the game's release, Saints Row 2 producer Dan Sutton stated in an interview that they definitely planned to make downloadable content. In June 2008, THQ confirmed that a Microsoft Windows port of the game was in development. It was developed by the localization team at CD Projekt, the CD Projekt Localization Center. The studio later became known as Porting House, and has been referred to by Volition as CD Projekt Black, in parallel to CG Projekt Red. The port was released in North America on January 5, 2009 in Europe, on January 23rd, and in Australia on February 5th. And in April 2016, Volition released a Linux port of the Windows version. 
In the aftermath of the auctioning of THQ's assets following its bankruptcy in 2013, the source code for the PC port of Saints Row 2 was believed to be lost. In the interim, the game has become highly unplayable, with no multiplayer support following the shutdown of the GameSpy service. In October 2019, Volition announced it had found the source code and that it would begin work to rebuild the game for modern systems, including replacing GameSpy with Steam matchmaking support, along with allowing for user mods. Additionally, when the update is released, which it has been, uh, it would contain the two DLCs, Ultor Exposed and Corporate Warfare, which had not previously released for the PC. The community manager that had led the effort, Mike Watson, also known as Idle Ninja, died from cancer on August 5th, 2021, but he was aware his condition had been deteriorating in the prior year and ensured that the work was moved to a small team with Volitions and Deep Silver support to continue on without his lead. So sad news with it, and it eventually did come out, and we do see the new Saints Row game, I guess, come out. So we see that recursion, uh, that new kind of life coming in to Saints Row. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm definitely glad that the series has continued on and, and really leaned into that silliness aspect of that. I, I think that it gives it a lot more room to operate than trying to directly compete with Grand Theft Auto. Although I say that, and they've probably had 13 years where they could have swooped in there and <laughs> <laughs> really uh, probably stolen away some of that GTA uh, market. Yeah, pretty much taken any of it. But unfortunately, did not. Uh, so I want to talk about real quick the two DLCs we've been talking about of Ultra Exposed and Corporate Warfare. So Ultra Exposed adds character customization and vehicle options, including Red Faction guerrilla-themed content. The Saints attempt to destroy Ultor and they get help from an Ultor worker, Terra, to expose Ultor's darker side. It also adds multiplayer content, including four online multiplayer maps and a cooperative mode, Metagame, wherein players compete for a cash bonus during story missions by accumulating points from special kill bonuses and property damage. The pack's missions feature American pornographic actress Tara Patrick, who plays a whistleblower and former microbiologist for the Ultor Corporation. Originally slated for release on April 16th, 2009, the pack was delayed by a week to April 23rd, so it could be released alongside the demo for Volition-developed game Red Faction Guerrilla. IGN praised the game's new co-op metagame, but criticized its relatively short missions. Eurogamer gave a negative review and criticized its value proposition. And Corporate Warfare focuses on the struggle between the Third Street Saints and the Ulator Corporation as well. The pack adds character costumes, facial hair, and vehicle options. It also includes three multiplayer maps and another cooperative mode metagame wherein players compete in ranking by performing vehicle stunts. And it was available for digital release on May 28th, 2009. Saints Row 2 sold approximately 365,000 copies in its first month outselling Dead Space, which was released the same day. The 360 version comprised the majority of these sales. The game shipped over 2 million units by the end of 2008. Still, analyst Doug Kreutz reported that the game's sales to this point were well below expectations. In May 2009, THQ reported a $431 million loss in revenue, but Saints Row 2 sales totaled $2.8 million. Combined with the original release, the series had worldwide sales in excess of 6 million, making it one of the best-selling video game franchises. 
The game's success led THQ to shift its focus to large franchises. The console version of Saints Row 2 garnered generally positive reviews, but the PC version was relatively less well-received due to framerate issues and visual pop-in. 1UP.com gave the game a B, stating that it relishes the hedonistic aspects of the open-world genre, that it has plenty of innovation, and that the excellence in the presentation makes the world of Saints Row 2 a great introduction for newcomers to open-world games. Eurogamer gave the game a 9 out of 10, stating that it is one of the most ridiculous and enjoyable games of the year. Game Informer gave the game an 8.75 out of 10, stating that, quote, in its own silly B-movie way, it's a damn fun game and a good time. GameSpot gave the game an 8 out of 10, stating that from beginning to end, this is one of the most fun urban chaos games out there and that it will keep you happily creating havoc for a long time. GameSpy gave the game 4.5 out of 5 stars, stating that it offers up a shooting and driving experience that is plenty of fun and that it is self-consciously funny in its irreverence and will definitely appeal to much of its audience. IGN US gave the game an 8.2 out of 10, stating that the core gameplay experience is extremely enjoyable. IGN Australia gave the game 8 out of 10, stating that it is big dumb fun, and IGN UK gave the game 7.5 out of 10, stating that it demonstrates that there is still plenty of mileage to be ecked out of open world games, and that there's certainly enough here to keep any fans of sandbox violence entertained. Entertainment Weekly flagged the game as racist, misogynistic, crude, cynical, humorless, and stupid, and labeled it the worst game of 2008, despite previously giving the game a B and calling it a larcenous good time. The game did not gain a favorable response from New York City officials and police, and city spokespersons requested that the game be pulled from shelves upon its release. NYPD union boss Patrick Lynch criticized the game, stating that these horrible and violent video games desensitize young people to violence while encouraging depravity, immorality, and glorifying criminal behavior. And we are like deep in the does video game violence cause real world violence? We're deep in that conversation in 2008. Yes. You know, some guy like stabs a taxi cab driver and he's like, I played GTA. It seemed like fun, you know, and in a lot of ways, it sort of became an excuse for certain criminals to use Mm -hmm. where they're like, you know, I didn't do this. GTA told me this was a good idea. There were obviously other issues at play. There have been a ton of studies done. You know, there's not a connection between these things, but. That was where we were, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, it's this was a weird era looking back when people are just like, pull this from the shelves. We're done with this. This is going to make kids hate everyone and be desensitized to violence and just do criminal activity. And it's just one of those things like looking back, man, 2008, oof. Man, 15 wow, years ago well, now. Well, 15 years action. 15 <laughs> I years, five. baby. Like, yeah, five years ago. Ugh. It's a weird time to look back on where it's like, oh, the kids, what are we going to do with them? This is depravity at its finest. And it's like, oh, dude, it's fine. Yeah. I think <laughs> so much of, yeah, so much of the criticism and definitely relating it to real world, real life crime and things 
it's just you have to be operating in two totally different worlds. For people like you and I, where we grew up on video games, we could recognize the difference of, yeah, these graphics are getting really great and things, but it was definitely nowhere near to the level of, first of all, even games today. But then secondly, yeah. like going out into the real world, like there, there wasn't any type of Tetris effect where I'm going out into the real world and I'm like, man, that car would look really cool if it blew up right now. You know, like you, any sane person can recognize those things. But if you weren't playing video games, if you didn't come up, you know, watching video games evolve and one day you look over at your TV and you see what you believe to be a very realistic showcase of video mm-hmm. game violence, maybe you have that thought and I, I can understand having the thought, but maybe thinking a little bit harder about it before making statements like this. Because you and I played Saints Row 2 a ton. I can attest that we never uh, started our own gang. Although, you know, we would have been great, I'm sure. Hey, there's still, there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> the the so thir- no, I, I, the 30s-something street gang. The 30s-something surviving gang. <laughs> We're just out here trying to live. <laughs> The 30s no, that's a, that's street a, saints. I love it. That's where we are. No, I think it's a great summation kind of where we see gaming as that point. I think one of the big reasons why we chose this is it shows like GTA wasn't untouchable. I, I think it's one of those things where we have seen games try and do this, whether they succeed a little bit and kind of fizzle out or even try to do an open sandbox. It's a lot of work. It's a lot to put in. And I think Saints Row 2 really hit the nail on that head with it. Saints Row 1, again, kind of felt like, that's GTA, but a little different. Saints Row 2 felt like, okay, we're standing on our own. This is where we're at. So I think kind of to wrap it up, Derek, what would you give this as your rating? This game, um, for me, I'm going to say like a 7.2 out of 10. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go with a, like a nitpicky. little weird. Usually I do halves and stuff. I feel like it's closer to a 7. It's not quite a 7.5. I have a lot of love for this game, a lot of nostalgic love for this game, but I definitely mm-hmm. recognize a lot of the problems that it had. It was buggy even back then, you know, before the PC port. There were certain issues with things disappearing, certain gameplay elements not completing even though they should have certain things not counting when you're trying to rack up like a numbers thing and those made for a sometimes frustrating gameplay experience but overall it was just a lot of relaxing fun at its core driving around super fast building up the gang you know running these businesses so-called um i don't know i just i had a really good time with this game some of it was just a little frustrating because of some of those buggy elements, I would say, is yeah. basically the best way to put it. No, I think that's a pretty good review, pretty good rating. Um, if I give it a rating, probably give it like a Johnny Gat out of a Billy Pistol. Divide that by Bonnie Bazooka. Uh, multiply that by... Uh, Jimbo sawed off shotgun. It's it's a mouthful for him, but he he lives by uh, his his parents who married and kept their last names of sawed off and shotgun. Um, probably out of yes, all of those people being in the thirtieth Street gang with us. <laughs> Amazing. Out of ten. Amazing. 
Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this episode was written and recorded, given to us by Evan Barr, and our lovely artwork was provided by Aaron Shattuck. Beautiful people. All this is also, also, also I just have a mouthful of everything, but also, also the people who care about us and support us, you listening, and also those on Patreon. I want to thank a select few members today with... Duststorm, Snide T-Bird, Nick Hyman, Keller Kane, and Anthony Gooch. As always, you can check us out at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have various physical and digital rewards, our different servers, and our D&D games. So check us out. Let us know how you're feeling. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on Discord. It's free to join. We're hanging out in there all the time, talking TV shows, talking movies, talking other video games, of course, and we would love to see you there. As always, you can catch us on Twitch. You can see me at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's twitch.tv slash S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. As well as Derek over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, please drop us a review. It helps us out a lot, and we love to hear from you. And with that... This has been our coverage of Saints Row 2. Are there any other open world games you want us to look at? Are there a battle of games? Is there like a GTA versus Saints Row kind of thing you want us to look at? Let us know. We'll start doing the research and get an episode out there. Absolutely, guys. As always, as always, as always, we get into our ASMR portion of the show. Mm. Clack, clack, clack. I don't, I don't know if they do that, but that's what I did. Clack, clack, clack. Clack, clack, clack. Here's, your, <laughs> here's the boss dragging a gang member on the ground in his truck. Uh, oh, no, so scary. Um, we've lost it by this point. So thank you all for listening. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, the boss. And this has been Finish the Fight, an ASMR gaming podcast.